This morning's scripture reading is taken from the book of Mark. We're starting a new series today that we're going to be in for several months. We're going to begin with Mark chapter 1, the first 13 verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. And the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. The word of God. After waiting... For thousands of years, literally, the people of Israel finally meet their Messiah. A voice comes out from heaven. The spirit descends on this man like a dove. And then, and then Jesus is whisked off into the wilderness without any warning for 40 days. They were waiting for this guy for thousands of years. He shows up and he's gone again. Have you ever, have you ever anticipated a new beginning with excitement? Only to find out when you're right at the cusp of it, you've got to wait even longer now, beyond your expectations, more waiting, and in the waiting, more struggle, trials, testing, Difficulty, adver adversity, conflict, in the waiting, when you thought you were right there. Uh, my, Becky and I and the kids moved to Westminster. It's been about a year and a half now. And we had put together, by God's grace, a group of us came together. We, call, we called ourselves the launch team. Uh, there were about nine of us, nine adults. And there was so much, we were brimming with excitement but there was this immediate tension and almost a temptation to be discouraged on a daily basis because the nine of us realized we had over a year of waiting to launch Deep Run Church, which was just last week, by the way. Fifteen months, it turned out, that we had to wait 
as God worked. And in that process, we have as a group and as a little baby church endured all sorts of testing. We've endured sickness. We've endured loss while we've been waiting and waiting and waiting. And you've experienced waiting in some form in your life. Maybe recently, maybe now. Maybe you're waiting and waiting is difficult. Now there's an irony that I want to share with you today. And the irony is this, that testing actually is our best way forward. And the gospel reveals why. Testing is the best way forward. And we're going to understand why as we look at an introduction to Mark's gospel. So I better begin by explaining what I mean and what the Bible means by the word gospel. Gospel is an old, there was an old English word, God spell, and it simply meant good news. Old English word. And the old Greek word in the New Testament, whenever you read in your English Bible, gospel, it was an old Greek word that meant the same thing. It just meant good news. Now here's the good news about Christianity. Three events, okay? The incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection, right? The good news of Christianity is three events. The incarnation is that God became a human being in the person of Jesus Christ. He became a human being in Jesus so that Jesus could break the curse of humanity's sin and rebellion against God. The second event is the crucifixion when God literally became our sin. That's what the Bible says. That on the cross, Jesus Christ transferred our ugly, unrighteous, bad record for his perfect, righteous record. That happened on the cross. Third event is the resurrection, where God became our life for those who follow and trust in this Jesus. That this Jesus, when he rose from the dead, began a process in which he, ever since then, has been creating a new humanity who is reconciled to God because of his blood and because of his resurrection from every tribe and nation and people group and language on the face of the earth, a new humanity. So those three events make up the good news that the Bible calls, that we call the gospel. And the Bible says that those who believe that Jesus did all this and that this alone is worthy of our salvation, those are the people that are saved. Those who believe in and trust in this Jesus who did these three things. Now I want to go back to something I said just a few minutes ago. Why does God allow us to wait for what is good? And in that waiting, endure all types of testing. Why is that? Well, the answer is in the gospel. And specifically, the answer is in the gospel's newness the gospel's humbleness, and the gospel's power. We're going to find the answer when we look at the gospel because in the gospel there is something new, there is something humble, and there is something powerful. All right? Those three things, we're going to talk about them today. Now the first one is this. There is a newness to the gospel itself. I don't mean, I don't mean new like your new car, okay, or this new church. There's a freshness to the gospel. There's a newness, there's a freshness to the gospel because there is a freshness and a newness to God, our creator. He is eternal and yet he is new. 
and he is fresh. And that's the way he works. He said through Isaiah, the prophet, in Isaiah chapter 43, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. And here, in Mark chapter 1, you, you find yourself suddenly, without warning, in the wilderness. Okay? Mark doesn't go all the way back to the beginning of Jesus' life. You're just kind of like a, a, a contemporary movie. Bam, you start right in the middle. Something's taking place. They're in the desert, in the wilderness. And verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it really is a true beginning as the Gospels go because scholars believe that Mark's Gospel was the very first one to be recorded in an intelligible way. Okay? Mark, this is, he's known as John Mark in the New Testament. He was, if you've heard of Barnabas, was partners with Paul in ministry. This is Barnabas' cousin. And scholars believe that Mark was really close to the Apostle Peter and was with Peter in Rome in the 60s, around A.D. 60, A.D. 65, around that time. And so the best guess by scholarship is that Mark's gospel is really from Peter's perspective. Okay? Peter died sometime in Rome, A.D. 60, A.D. 65, right around the time of the Emperor Nero's persecution of Christians. A pretty rough persecution period. Okay? And Mark was in Rome at that time with Peter. You can check it out in the New Testament. That's the most we can make out of it, but it's pretty clear that Mark's gospel um, was the first one. And there's a real urgency to Mark's storytelling. You're going to keep seeing the word immediately come up again and again in Mark's account. Luke's gospel, if you've ever been familiar with Luke or Matthew or John, they kind of, they kind of give you the impression of documentaries that have been composed carefully decades after an event with all this interesting perspective and insight, Mark's gospel gives you the impression of a, of a Monday morning news feed of the events that, the crazy events that took place over the weekend. Okay? That's really how Mark's gospel feels. Okay? And this freshness, this, this newness, has been characteristic of the gospel for almost 2,000 years. Okay? For that amount of time, the gospel has renewed people and remade people and individuals and literally transformed communities and entire cultures and societies. This gospel for 2,000 years. Christians make the same mess of the world that any type of people make a mess of the world. But the gospel transforms people. The gospel remakes cultures. The gospel has remade me and many of you. There's a newness to it. Now I want to ask you a question at this point. I do this once in a while and you can give me an answer. How are new things announced in today's world? If you want to announce a new product, a new movie, a new person, a new idea, a new company, how, how do you announce it? Internet. internet. Put it on the internet, John. Social media. There you go. We've used social media. What else? Television. Newspapers, yeah. Yeah, what's that? 
Smoke signals, yes. Yes, yeah. It, everything new is not always safe and, and, and positive. There may be something dangerous going on. Something critical, yeah, urgent. Any, any other ideas? How do you announce new things? Breast conference, exactly right. Some, some big movie star tells the press he's helping some people, you know, some ducks across the street or something like that so that they don't get run over in a press conference so that this person can be seen for how wonderful they are. Right. Yeah. All sorts of things. Any, any others? This is kind of how we do it. We do it big. When, when the prince and the princess across the pond have a baby, we all know about it. A new person comes into the world, right? You know, rather than impress us, rather than amaze us, rather than intimidate us, the gospel confounds us. The gospel throws us when it brings our attention to the newness of Jesus Christ. There's, and here's how it confounds us. There's a humbleness to it. This is what we don't expect. That the gospel brings humility and reveals humility. And you see it reflected in the lowliness of John the Baptist. And you see it reflected in the lowly nature, the lowly estate of Jesus himself. So let's go and look at John. Right? This is not the Apostle John who wrote another gospel. This is just... This is just John the Baptist, actually Jesus' cousin. And what you see John doing here when we look at uh, Mark chapter 1 is he's, elite, he's basically leading a spiritual revival, right? He's out there at the banks of the Jordan River. He's baptizing people. And the Bible tells us here they're coming out from Jerusalem and all of the province of Judea. And they're coming out to be baptized by him. They're confessing their sins and they're repenting of their sins. They're repenting of their way of life. He's, and who's leading this revival? Is it the high priest from Jerusalem? Some pope-like figure? Is it Billy Graham leading the revival? What does verse 6 say? John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. I had a professor in seminary who, who used to joke about it. He would say, how, how did John make that palatable? You know, like, did he take the locust and dip it in the honey? Sort of like a wilderness fondue type of a thing? What did it look like? Here's a guy. This is a rugged guy. He does not have a curb appeal, okay? He's out there in the wilderness, and, and I, I kind of feel like, picture the Unabomber from the 1990s. That may be what John the Baptist actually looked like. Just on appearance alone, John the Baptist would probably not pass our child background check for working in our nursery and Sunday school ministry, okay? That's at least the pic The Bible says that John was the greatest prophet to ever live. But we see a picture of a man who really just kind of throws you. Is this really the great prophet that the Jews are waiting for? Apparently it was. And who is John leading this revival for? Who's the revival for? It doesn't get any more mainstream here. The revival's for a man from Nazareth. There is a lowliness present in the picture we see of Jesus Verse 9 of Mark chapter 1 says, In those days Jesus came 
from Nazareth of Galilee. He didn't come from Jerusalem. He came from a small town in an out-of-the-way province. He didn't come from Rome or Athens or Alexandria. He didn't come from New York. He didn't come from Washington, D.C. He came from Nazareth, Nazareth in Galilee. It would have been like saying this. In those days, Jesus came from Dundalk. In those days, Jesus came from Westminster. Jesus came from Hampstead. Jesus came from Tawnytown or Littlestown. You get the idea? It says in verse 12 and 13, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. It does say that angels minister to him. But that's the setting. Animals, Satan, wilderness, 40 days. This is, this is hardcore stuff for the man from Nazareth. Okay? Now, Jesus, it's the same Greek word, drive out. Jesus drove out demons later in his ministry. Jesus drove out business people from the temple. But here, Jesus is being driven out. After his baptism, after the words of God are heard from heaven, driven out into the wilderness, 40 days away from the press, out of the public eye, with nothing but the Holy Spirit and his Father. There's a lowliness to John as God's prophet. There's a lowliness to Jesus as God's Messiah. But it's this humility that makes the gospel so new. That's what makes the gospel fresh. The humbleness of it. Okay? This is not a Caesar. It's not a Napoleon. It's not an American presidential candidate trying to prove himself to you. It's not a celebrity. Think about that if you're not a Christian. Okay? This is not what worldly leaders do when they introduce themselves to you, is it? This is a humble man who's baptized, initiated, and then gets out of town and goes into the wilderness for reasons we're not even really sure of. Something to do with him and his heavenly father. There's a humility to Jesus. He actually said it was so. Later in his ministry, he would say, come to me people who are weary and burdened like we are as we wait in testing for life to work, for God to work in our lives. He said, come to me, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The humility, remember this if you're a Christian and you're praying for your neighbors and you're praying for non-Christians around you, remember that the humility of Jesus is what draws so many people to him. The humbleness of Jesus, not the power, it's all there, but the humility. That's what's new, that's what's fresh, and that is what a world who needs him finds so appealing. Ken Sandy, who wrote The Peacemaker, um, he tells a story of how Someone he knew, a woman he knew, actually became a Christian, was drawn to Christianity because she was invited to his church. And that Sunday morning in the church, the pastor got up in front of the entire congregation and confessed something that he had done to hurt the church. Um, I don't think it was anything scandalous, something about a conflict with other leaders, but, but he just got up in front of the congregation because everybody knew about it and, and he just said he was sorry. 
And he asked for their forgiveness. And as a result of this leader humbling himself, this person was drawn to Christianity. The humility of the gospel draws people. There is a humbleness to it, and that's what makes it so new. But let me suggest to you that this humility, the same humility that draws people to Jesus, that draws people to the gospel, it also repels people as well. Okay. It even embarrasses us. The humility that brings people to Jesus also embarrasses people and makes us uncomfortable and awkward and makes us want to look the other way and not listen and not be associated with him. We actually reject, we are prone to reject the irony that we're talking about, this, this weakness and humbleness okay, that's seen in God himself. That irony, it doesn't sit well with us. Okay? We don't like putting our hope in weak heroes, do we? What is the brilliance of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit and all those books? The brilliance of the plot is that the, the, the unlikely hero is a chubby little hobbit who doesn't even want to walk out of his own house, right? Nobody wants to put their hope in weak heroes. Think of, uh, we don't have a lot of kids, but think of Kung Fu Panda, right? Poe, the dragon warrior, is supposed to bring peace to the entire valley by learning Kung Fu, but he's a fat panda who, who struggles with attention deficit disorder. <laughs> Nobody wants to put their hope in a weak hero. Not only is it not fashionable, it seems stupid, it seems ludicrous, it seems embarrassing. It's countercultural. it's not intuitive. And let's take it even further than that. Not only do I think we don't want to put our hope in weak heroes, we don't like to be weak ourselves. I really think that's the issue, is we struggle with weakness. We struggle with exposing our weakness, let alone enduring weakness. Maybe some of you here believe that God, so to speak, has driven you out into some type of wilderness experience in your life. I don't know what it would be. We suffer loss. Loss of people. Loss of help. Loss of reputation. Loss of tradition and comfort and ease. Right? Maybe it was a death or, or, um, or a disease or a relationship, right? But in some sense, we say, hey, God has left me out here in the wilderness. What am I supposed to do out here? I was ready. I was excited. We were going to move forward. And now I find that I'm in the wilderness. And I feel alone. And I feel pressed. I'm out here with the elements. And with the wild beasts. And, and there's, this, there's this, this angel that looks like an angel. But I'm, I'm convinced he's wicked. And he keeps saying things to me that I don't think are true. But I'm not sure. And I'm starting to doubt who I am, and where God is, and I feel like I'm starting to lose my way. Wilderness experience. Who wants that? Nobody wants that. <laughs> Nobody asks for that, right? And then we're out there, and, and we kind of feel this thorn in our flesh. Something that keeps digging in. It's like, come on already. If I could just get rid of this thorn, I can move forward. I can get on with my life. And we start saying to God, God, when are you going to take this thorn away? 
But again, I want to suggest to you that God's testing is our only way forward. God's testing, like it was for Jesus, is our way forward because it's the very source of God's power. That's where God's power comes into play. It's in the testing. It's in the wilderness waiting. There's a power in the gospel that's only revealed through weakness. The Apostle Paul was a really important guy, right? Even by our standards, right? Half of the New Testament was written by this guy. He was an amazingly effective missionary for God's kingdom in the New Testament. But Paul said that there's this thing in his life called conceit. And God was concerned that he would become conceited by all of the fruitfulness and success and power and wonder and work that was being done in Paul and through Paul throughout the Roman Empire. So Paul said, to prevent me from getting conceited, I got a thorn in my flesh. Scholars really don't know what it is. They think it may have been poor eyesight. He may have had bad eyes. We don't know. But some, something ailing him and bugging him again and again. And he said, I asked God three times to take this thorn away from me. How many times have you asked God to get you out of the wilderness? How many times have you asked him to remove that thing or that person that you're thinking about right now? 2 Corinthians chapter... 2 Corinthians chapter 12 reveals Jesus' answer to Paul. He said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. That was Paul's answer. Paul went on to say, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, it gets worse, <laughs> hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so God's power in your life, in your thinking, in your work, in your relationships, in your community, fill in the blank, whatever you're thinking about right now, God's power only comes as we trust him in weakness. Testing, my friends, not success. Remember, we're Americans. Not success. Testing is our only way forward. And here's the big reason. It was Jesus' way forward. If you're a Christian, or if you're not, but you're considering who this Jesus is, Life for you is not going to look different than what life looked like for Jesus, right? It says that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tested by Satan. Okay? It is the Spirit of God that drove Jesus through his life, through 33 years on this planet, dealing with sickness and difficulty and loss and pain and grief. And sorrow and even fear, like you deal with it, like I deal with it. The only difference is he never sinned. He never lost it from God's perspective like you and I do. But Jesus, by the Spirit of God, endured all of that. And God's Spirit led Jesus to a Roman cross. 
And on that cross, led by God's Spirit, Jesus suffered the greatest loss. Jesus endured the greatest wilderness experience of loneliness and fear and doubt and persecution from Satan himself so that you wouldn't have to. That's the truth of the gospel right there. You see how the newness of the gospel and the power of the gospel only make sense when you consider the humility of the gospel? That's how the newness and the power work because Jesus humbled himself and became weak for you. Now you can humble yourself and endure weakness for him. And you can trust him in that weakness and with your weakness to do wonderful things in you, to do transforming things in you, and to do transforming things in the people that you spend all of your time with who need what he has and what he's given to you. And that is how the humility of the gospel reveals its newness and its power in your life. Testing is our only way forward because it was Christ's way forward. And if you belong to him, this is our road. But it's not without joy and it's not without comfort and it's not without love because the Bible and the book of Hebrews says that Jesus sympathizes with our weakness because he was tested and tempted in every way. He was just perfect in all of it. And that's why we can trust him. So there's a love and an intimacy and a joy in trusting Jesus in your wilderness waiting, in your weakness. Because he knows in a way that I can't. He knows exactly what you're going through. So testing, God's testing, is our best way forward. There's a children's book, I can't remember the name of it, you'll remind me later today, where they're going, they're going, they're looking, they're going out looking for blueberries, right? And, and they're afraid they're going to run into a bear. And they keep repeating this refrain over and over again. Every time they get to a marsh or a cave or something scary or difficult, they say, you can't go under it. You can't go around it. I guess we'll have to go through it. And that's what, that's what weakness and suffering and difficulty in our lives is. You can't go around it. You can't go under it, over it. You've got to go through it. It's going through it, led by God's spirit, that his newness and his power become evident to you and through you to the people around you. So that's the gospel. It reveals a pattern of our lives that involves newness, power, via humble circumstances. This is the true Jesus, and I hope you stay with us for the next several weeks and a few months as we explore what he did, what he said, who he is through the gospel of Mark. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you not only paved a highway for your son Jesus to walk, but you've paved a way for us. I pray that you would give us faith, Father, to follow Jesus down that road, whatever it leads to. We know it will lead to beauty and transformation and healing and eternal glory, frankly. And we, we pray that that would happen in Westminster and in Carroll County through this church, but Father, we confess we're afraid of what we're going to face on that road, and we're very weary and discouraged by what we're dealing with right now. 
we ask for the faith to trust Jesus, to follow him forward as you lead us. In his name, amen.